Father, I ask that you would be at work here this morning. Use this time to give us application for the things that you want us to see. I thank you for what you've done in the hearts of individuals already in the Saturday night service and in the 9 o'clock service. And now for each of us here that have taken this time and set it aside, we ask that you'd give us not only the eyes to see and the ears to hear, but also the capacity to apply this to our heart, and that can only happen through your Holy Spirit. Help us to realize, Father, the purpose for which you had John write this down, so that we might know more of your nature and your character. God, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Did you know that God spends time thinking about you? That he turns his thoughts towards you more often than you might have anticipated. God thinks about you in such a way that the the writer of Psalms, King David, couldn't quite grasp it. And I've really been kind of vegetating on this verse this week. I want you to see it on the screen. Psalm 40, verse 5. Many, O Lord my God, are the wonders which you have done... And your thoughts toward us, there is none to compare with you. If I would declare and speak of them, they would be too numerous to count. You notice that he compares God's creation, God's wonders, with his thoughts toward us. So, the magnificence of the Rocky Mountains, the creation of the solar system, he puts on the same plane with God's thoughts towards you that they're that vast, so numerous that he can't count them. So I want to help you process something this morning in this vein as we work through this text that God deliberately has plans for you and thinks about you. Not always in the way that we want him to. It feels from a human standpoint and you're going to see that this morning. So on three, I'd like you to say it with me, God thinks about me. Okay, so let's say that. One, two, three. God thinks about me. Here's the word about thought. This is the way it's used in the Hebrew language. Mahakshaba. I want you to see the definition for it. A contrivance, an intention, a plan, a purpose, a thought. So if you're going to take this in the original Hebrew text, you're going to look at it and say, it's not just, wow, There's Byron, I think about him. Or there's Kim, I think about her. It's not just God turning his attention. It's God with an intentional purpose in his thought towards you. More than just a fleeting moment. With purpose is what this verse tells us. So this mahakshaba word, actually kind of a cool word to say. Why don't you say it with me? One, two, three. Mahakshaba. Now, in the Middle Eastern language, they felt their words. And so, it comes from the back of the throat. And our English language is so proper, and it lacks the same kind of feeling. It's very visceral for them. So, when they use this word, mahakshaba, it comes from the back of their throat, and they totally understood what it meant. This mahakshaba, it's got to hock it up in the back of your throat to say it. It it takes some body language to pronunciate it, to enunciate it. So let's insert it into Psalm 40, verse 5. O Lord, my God, are, um, many, many, O Lord, my God, are the wonders which you have done and your mahakshaba toward us. Now there's another 
place that it was used in Scripture that you might be very familiar with if you grew up in church, and that's Jeremiah 29.11. Look with me up on the screen. For I know the plans I have for you. That word plan is mahakshaba. For I know the mahakshaba I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Now we understand that God was speaking to the people of Israel at, right at that moment through Jeremiah, but in generally speaking of His people, those who belong to Him, directing His thoughts towards them. Now I'm confident that God thinks about me way more than I think about Him. And before you get too haughty, I bet you're the same way. I bet God thinks about you way more than you think about Him. So much so that David said, I can't even begin to count them, your thoughts towards me. Sometimes, if we're really honest, it feels like that the thoughts, the plans God has for us, sometimes really do harm us. It feels that way, even though His Word says differently. So how do we balance the two sides of this issue? Because God says, I want everything for your good. Yet, some things don't always feel like they're for our good. So let's look at the text this morning and see how this plays out in uh, John chapter 4 and verse 43. Left off with verse 42 last week when Jesus was in Samaria dealing with the people in the city called Sychar. We pick up this morning in verse 43. If you're new to New Hope, you'll find Bibles in the pew racks there in front of you and you can follow along there, but it'll also be up on the screen. And in the uh, bulletins you found this morning when you came in, there were little white inserts in there that have notes for the message, and there's blank spaces. You'll be able to fill those blank spaces in as we go along because the answers will be up on the screen as well. So let's look at verse 43 of John chapter 4. After the two days, he went forth from there into Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Or what are the two days that he's speaking of? Well, he was just in Sychar. Remember where we left off last week? He spent two days sitting in the city with these Samaritans, teaching them about the things about God. And so he's left this region of Sychar out of the country of Samaria, and he's gone further north now. He's up in the very northern top of Israel, and he's in this region called Galilee, northern part of Israel. So this portion of verse 44, though, it says, for Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. It's almost like, What's that hard shift? Why did he throw that in there? Well, Jesus had just been in Samaria, and the people in the city of Sychar received him and declared him to be the Messiah. They recognized him as the Son of God. And so there was an enthusiastic acceptance of who Jesus was in Samaria. But now he's coming into his home territory where he was raised, this area called Galilee. And so John's giving us this contrast of the acceptance by the Samaritans and this casual interest by the people of Galilee. So Jesus is not surprised when the people of his home region reject him. They won't recognize who he is because he himself said, a prophet's without honor in his own country. So that sets the stage for this next verse, verse 45. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they themselves also went to the feast. So if you don't mind underlining or writing in your Bible, 
I would take that word so right at the very beginning and circle that or underline that. Here's why. That's the verb au in, in the Greek language, O-U-N, and it's used always when it's linking one thought with a previous thought. So this word so, O-U-N in, in the Greek language, is linking what's happening here with the Galileans to the statement that was just made that a prophet is without honor in his own country. So here's how it's linked. So as a result of a prophet having no honor in his own country, when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, which makes it look like, well, they, they've accepted him. Now look why. Having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem. You know the difference between an EMT and an ambulance chaser? So they both arrive at the accident scene, don't they? They both get to the location. But an EMT is there for a purpose. They actually have a requirement. They have a task. An ambulance chaser is just them, somebody that's there because they're curious. They're fascinated by what's going on. They're entertained, if you will allow that word. So this is how this is being used in the context of this verse. We've got EMTs, those who really are there for a purpose, and you've got ambulance chasers who are going to the accident scene because it's fascinating. So we have these crowd, this group of Galileans who have received him, who are the ambulance chasers. They're curiosity seekers, and they're hoping to see Jesus perform. They want to see more of the things that they've seen and heard about him doing in Jerusalem. So John links it again, verse 46. He uses the same verb again. Therefore, he came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. So that's that same verb again. Therefore, it links the previous thought with this thought. And John's building his case. So it starts out with Jesus saying, prophets without honor in his own country. Comes down a little bit smaller on the point saying that the Galileans saw his signs, and now he focuses in on one person to make an example out of him, one individual who knows that Jesus does signs. So that's why it starts out in verse 46 saying, therefore, so the funnel is being brought down to a point to make his example for us. So we're going to learn about two towns this morning, one called Cana and one called Capernaum. Cana we're familiar with because a few weeks ago we looked at the example of Jesus making water into wine there. Not a real big city, actually kind of a village, but Capernaum was a pretty big city, a city of 5,000 people. And at that time, that was a pretty respectable population. I want you to see a photograph of Capernaum, what it looked like at the time of Jesus. is very similar to what it looks like today. These archaeological ruins are... Um, that you see in the foreground are part of a temple that they discovered when the, the area of Capernaum was being unearthed. This is actually called the City of Jesus. If you were to travel to Israel today, you'd see signs around there calling it the City of Jesus because Jesus spent most of his adult life in Capernaum. He went to Jerusalem. He went to Nazareth. He went to Cana. But he lived in Capernaum, which was a fishing village. And in the background, you can see the Sea of Galilee. You see the water in the background there. So it's a very beautiful area. So this area of Capernaum was kind of a, a royal hub where people who worked for King Herod lived because King Herod's 
city that he lived in was just down the coast from here, a city called Tiberias. So I'm going to show you a little map so that you can see an explanation and help you to understand what's going on here. If you look at the very top of the Sea of Galilee, the body of blue water, you see the town of Capernaum that we were just talking about. Follow the coastline of the Sea of Galilee down to the south, look on the western shore, and you see the city of Tiberias. If you go directly to the west, you see the red dot, and that's where Cana is at. So Capernaum and Cana that we're learning about this morning are separated by about 22 miles. Not a big deal for us. We jump on a motorcycle or in a car, and we're in there in less than a half hour. For them, a day and a half journey. They'd walk it. Or if they were really wealthy, they had a chariot. This is a mountainous region between the two, so it wasn't just level ground. They're walking uphill to get to Cana. So this man that you're about to learn about had a day and a half journey to go and find Jesus because his son is sick. That's what we've just read about. A royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. So this man is going to go to Cana to find Jesus where he made water into wine, but his son is back in Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee in this shoreside resort. Now you want to ask yourself when you're looking at Bible passages two specific questions every time you look at the text. You always want to say, what's gone on before that will help me understand this? What's gone on to lead up to this point? And you also want to say, what are the contextual clues that are really important to help me discern the meaning here? Well, we know that Jesus has turned water into wine, so the word about him is spreading rapidly. And he's done other signs down in Jerusalem. So people are beginning to hear about this miracle worker. Or what are some of the contextual clues that will help us understand this situation? Look at the map closely, and you see Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee and Tiberias to the southern region on the western shore. King Herod Antipas had his palace there. Now he also had a palace in Jerusalem, but he resided primarily at his summer home on the shore of the Sea of, Tiberi- uh, sea of Galilee, where Tiberius is at. Here's the contextual understanding. King Herod Antipas is the son of King Herod the Great. King Herod the Great died in 4 BC. Now, he's the one who carried out the execution of all the children the, when Jesus was born. King Herod Antipas is his son, and he was a spoiled brat. He was Prince Antipas, and then became King Antipas, or King Herod Antipas. Just to prove his loyalty to Rome, when he was named king, he executed thousands of Jews just to put himself in the good standing of the Roman government. He had no problem doing away with people. Now, he had an issue with John the Baptist. John the Baptist was speaking against him politically because he had made a bad marriage. He had stolen his brother's wife. John the Baptist is the cousin of Jesus. John the Baptist baptized Jesus. So this royal official living in Capernaum who works for King Herod and dwells within the royal household, if you will, understands that there's an issue between Herod and John the Baptist and therefore an issue between Herod and Jesus. So he has to be very careful in this situation. He has a desperate need because his son is dying. But he also realizes This is a great risk to him. And he's willing to take this journey and go all the way to Cana to encounter Jesus. So that's the context of what's going on here so that you understand. He's going to be careful in this situation, yet he's got a desperate need. 
And he's got time to ponder all of this. He starts out in Capernaum. He's got a day and a half journey in front of him. He's walking uphill all the way to Cana. And on the way, he has plenty of time to think, is my son still alive? Should I really be doing this? Will Jesus even receive me? What about others watching me? They know that I'm going to align with this one that seems to be against King Herod. Lots of thoughts go through the human mind when you're walking into a situation when you don't know the answers. So amid all these questions and fears, he arrives in Cana and seeks Jesus out. So what we discover here is this official is not driven by his need for salvation. He's driven by desperation. He's putting himself in a situation because he's desperate for something to intervene on behalf of his son. So you understand his anxiety. Let's go to verse 47. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was imploring him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So this guy has no idea that Jesus has just been in Samaria. All he knows is that Jesus came out of Judea. He doesn't know that Jesus just spent time with the people in this city called Sychar and the unclean Samaritans. All he knows is that Jesus is now in his backyard in this town called Cana. And one thing is on his mind. Desperate people do desperate things in situations like this. You only have to go to St. Jude Children's Hospital to see the look in parents' faces when they're trying to intervene on behalf of their children. How much darkness invades someone's soul when a family member appears to be on the edge of death. Everybody in the family wants to go to battle for them. So you can understand how frantic he is. How many tears did he shed on the way to Cana, wondering if his son was still alive? There's no cell phone. He can't check up on him. So you understand what's going on here when he says, imploring him to come. The word that's used there, imploring, is actually eratao. You'll see the definition for it on the screen. Eratao, to interrogate by implication to request or to beseech. And it's an ongoing process. So this eratao is applied to this man who's a royal official. And we find him begging Jesus over and over and over again. See, it's not implore. It's plural, imploring. It goes on and on and on. Asking Jesus to do something for him. So what has he done? He has swallowed his pride. He's an individual who is used to telling other people what to do. A royal official from the court of King Herod is on his knees. Illness removes all dignity both for the patient laying in the bed, waiting for the examination of the nursing staff and the doctors, and for the family who are willing to go to bat on behalf of that individual. I've seen it over and over again. Illness just takes away your dignity. You don't care. You want a solution to the situation. And that's what's going on in the heart of this father. So we see now a remarkable response from Jesus. Verse 48. So Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. Now that seems pretty harsh, doesn't it? Okay, because we got the Son of God who's all-knowing. He's omniscient. Nothing escapes His attention. He knows what's going on with that little boy. 
yet he responds with this rebuke. I think at this point, from what I'm pulling out of the text, he's looking at this father, but he's got this crowd of ambulance chasers around him who are looking for another piece of entertainment. And he uses this moment. So he's referring to what they saw earlier because we just learned in verse 45 that they'd already bound down in Jerusalem and they'd seen signs and wonders. They understood he was a miracle worker. So Jesus is taking this moment to speak to the whole crowd. Unless you see things that excite you, you don't even believe. I want you to see the progression of Jesus' rebuke. Look closely. First you see, then you believe. You see the progression? That's a cliche of our culture, isn't it? Seeing is believing. So we're culturally conditioned to think that way. And Jesus is speaking to the people in the first century. they got the exact same situation going on. At one level, it seems like a very practical trait. Just so you know, I was raised by a car dealer. My dad owns a car dealership and sold it years ago. But I was raised and trained to think like an individual who owns a car dealership. And you don't sell things or you don't buy things unless you see evidence first. It's like that in all of the business world. Seeing is believing. The car is sold when you actually have the cash in your pocket. That's why my dad trained me that. Your entire culture, our entire culture, is trained conditionally to think this way. We've been culturized. Yet Jesus is saying it's exactly the opposite of the way you're supposed to think when it comes to spiritual issues. Believe first then you'll see through spiritual eyes. So we find the eyes of faith are totally at odds with our earthly way of thinking. And Jesus is rebuking him. He's using this moment saying, think like God. Think like Jesus. Believe first. Then you'll see through spiritual eyes. So apparently, this nobleman, this royal official, has the capacity to believe that Jesus can do this. However, is what you're going to see next, he believes that God has to do it on his terms. Look very closely. Go to verse 49. The royal official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Now, you're not seeing a demanding royal at this point. You're seeing a desperate dad. His heart is just crying out. I want you to look at this through his paradigm. You know what I mean by paradigm? It's it's a person's way of thinking, their mindset. So this royal official has a paradigm by which he's approaching God. If you look at that verse closely, you'll see that dwelling within that request is an implicit paradigm, the way that he's thinking. God must do it my way. Every one of us have a default position that we fall into when we approach God about an issue. We very quickly hit the default button and lean back into a method by which we bring things to God according to our standards, our way of thinking, how we want it to play out. I'm going to show you that. I call it the come versus go principle. Let's look at the feebleness of this guy's faith by looking at that verse. First of all, He assumes Jesus is capable of healing, but he believes Jesus has to be on site. You've got to come with me to Capernaum. You've got to come. Let's go now. My son is about to die. 
See the first requirement? Starting to put God in a box. Believing that God has to be on sight. Let's look at the second one. He believes Jesus is capable, but it has to happen in his time frame. Before my child dies. He apparently has no capacity whatsoever to believe that God can raise the dead. Now, I'm not going to very quickly point fingers at him because Jesus has not raised anybody from the dead at this point. This is very early in Jesus' ministry. It hasn't happened yet. Yet, he has no capacity whatsoever. So you understand the paradigm by which he's coming to this situation? God, you've got to come to this location. You've got to come with me to Capernaum, and you've got to touch my child before he dies. So he he falls into the default position. That's the same way we approach God. We have our default method. Think about this. Why did Jesus give the Lord's Prayer in the manner that he did if he didn't know that we have a default position by which we fall into? The disciples come to Jesus and say, Jesus, teach us how to pray. Jesus' response, this is how you should pray. Our Father, who is in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He put God's will first. He declared God's holiness first. He declared God's kingdom first before anything else. And if you look at the Lord's Prayer, you'll see that the laundry list of requests comes after all of that, which is the exact opposite of the human tendency, which is to come to God with our will, with our default position and say, this is what I want. And by the way, you've got to come with me to Capernaum to do it. So we come with this requirements for God. Do it my way in my time. And accidentally, I think, it's probably just human nature. We give God parameters. And we don't intend to, but we do. So as opposed to asking God what his will is, you see this individual telling God what to do and how to do it. So if we're going to think like Jesus, we're going to believe first, and we're going to see through spiritual eyes second. Did you know that God credits you for thinking like that? God credits you for believing him at his word and taking him at his word? Think with me all the way back. If you're raised in church, you're familiar with this story to the Old Testament. God is talking to Abraham before he named him Abraham, when he was still known as Abram. He takes Abram outside during the middle of the night, midnight, tells him to look up at the sky and to see all the stars and says to him, as many as the stars in the sky, Abram, so will the nation be that comes from you. It will be a great nation. Scripture says that Abram took God at his word and believed him, and so God did something specific. Look with me on the screen. It comes from Genesis 15:6. Then he believed in the Lord, and he, meaning God, reckoned it to him as righteousness. God credits us when we take him at his word, and we believe that what he said is true, and we can bank on it. And so God credits Abram, in this case, with righteousness because he took God at his word. Now what we see next is that despite of this weakness, despite the rebuke, Jesus still graciously meets the need. Let's go to the next verse, verse 50. 
Jesus said to him, Go, your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off. Number one, he took Jesus at his word. He believed that what he said was true. So in, if you're in Great Britain, if you're um, in the, the land of the birth of the English language, they have an interesting way of using this word go. It sounds harsh the way it's interpreted in our Bible. When Jesus says go, it sounds very directive like a command to him. But the English, the English tense in it is much more appropriate when you hear an Englishman from Great Britain say, carry on or go about your business. It's a very kind response. So that's the tense that's used here in that you should just carry on with your day. Move ahead. Don't worry about it. It's being taken care of. Off you go. You understand that? It's much more gentle. So that's God's response to this man. Off you go. Your son lives. So he meets the need despite the rebuke. So this individual now is being forced to have his mind expand. The default button is being removed from the keyboard. God is causing him to think bigger because what has he done? This individual said, come with me before my son dies. Jesus says, go. So it's not what Jesus can do only, but how and when he does it. And that's forcing his mind to expand. He's beginning to realize this person has control over space and time. This isn't saying necessarily that he believes in Jesus as the Messiah, but he believes the word that Jesus said. So he's taking Jesus at his word. So up to this point, this man's view of God has been very, very small. And Jesus is using this to expand his thinking. I've got control over things you don't even understand. So I find, and I'm, I'm sure you do, that today many people prefer a selective approach when it comes to taking Jesus at his word and following the things that he told us to do in here. I find that people, when they come to an issue of taking Jesus at his word versus cultural issues, social issues, even religious issues, because of the paradigm by which we approach things, we tend to fall into that default position very quickly and step back and say, yeah, culture trumps God's word or social issues trump God's word. I find many people like that today that pick and choose and say, I'll follow that, but I'm not sure I'm going to follow that because eh, it's a little dicey. Don't want to go there. So we tend to need our paradigm reshaped. We need it remade because it's not very comfortable sometimes to always do what Jesus says especially if you've been begging on your knees, asking him to come with you to intervene on behalf of your son. And he says, off you go, your son lives. There's a lot of faith right there. So when we don't take Jesus at his word, we really limit God's work. I think that this guy could have just as easily stayed on his knees and kept begging, please, no, you don't understand, you've got to come with me. But he chose to take God at his word and believe him. So without any tangible proof, no evidence whatsoever, he starts off back towards home. Can't pick up the cell phone and say, hey, Jesus just told me that our son's okay. Is that right? No, he's got a day and a half journey ahead of him. He can't really validate, but he's taking him at his word. So meanwhile, we discover back in Capernaum, this guy's wife has experienced 
radical healing. So much so that she chooses two of the servants to head off to find her husband. Pick it up with me at verse 51. As he was now going down, his slaves met him, saying that his son was living. Verse 52. So he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. They said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So if you're thinking like a Jewish person, you're thinking seventh hour, everything starts at six in the morning, so it's one in the afternoon. Boom. Whatever was affecting this child that was killing him is gone. Now, you see there's a progression that takes place here in the man's thinking, even in the questioning process. First of all, you should know that um, individuals did not travel at night during this period of time. Sun goes down, they stop, mostly because of the danger on the roads, the highways, bandits waiting out in the desert areas for people traveling at night so they could rob them. So typically, the average person would stop at night and rest, waiting for the next morning for sunrise. And apparently, the servants did the same thing. They've got no reason to risk their lives. The son's alive. All they have to do is deliver the news. So apparently somewhere along this route, they both stopped, and they don't meet until the next day because he said, yesterday at the seventh hour. Now this man, when he begins to realize his son is alive, he's left Cana, he's headed down slope back to the Sea of Galilee, sees these two guys in the distance, And he asked them a question that's very telling. So he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. He believed that the healing would be gradual, not supernatural, that he would begin to improve. Look at their response. Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. He's healed the instant Jesus spoke. I want you to see the word that's used on the screen. Aphiame. To send forth. This is the word that the servants used. It aphiame him. It was sent forth. It was yielded up. It's gone. It's not that he began to improve. It's over. He's instantly healed. So they're overjoyed. Look with me at verse 53 now. So the father knew that it was the hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives. And he himself believed and his whole household. Oh, wait a minute. It already said that he believed. What's the difference? If you go back several verses, it says he believed Jesus' word and started off towards home. Yet now it says he's believed again. He believed that Jesus had the capacity to heal. Now he believes that Jesus is the Son of God. He believes in the Messiah. So when he gets home, his faith is now so contagious that he can't wait to tell the story. And he tells his whole household, his son who was dying, the servants who met him on the road, everyone who lives under his roof is now a believer in Jesus. Why? Because God turned his thoughts towards a little boy who was dying in Capernaum. For I know the plans I have for you, thoughts to prosper you and not to harm you. All things work together for good for those who love God, for those who are called according to His purpose. Even though it doesn't always feel like it, when somebody's laying on a deathbed. See, this man encountered this thing that we've been calling the crisis of belief. That's what we've been hinging this entire study on. He believes this now so sincerely that he's told his entire family that he's just encountered God. How could they believe unless he told them? 
So this crisis of belief issue has become very real for him. This entire story hinges on a crisis. We started the study, the portrait, in the book of John with the premise that you all, I, encounter a crisis of belief and what we believe about God determines what we do next. This man has encountered this crisis of belief. Could God heal Would God turn his attention towards my son? In the midst of it, God reshaped this man's thinking. But he's taken him through this crisis of belief to help him understand that what he really believes about God determines what he does next. And now it's played out for his entire household. Uh, If you are one that loves theology, I'm going to close with this last verse here because it's just a little detail item that will help you in your discussions with other people who struggle with a passage like verse 54. Look closely at it. This is again a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. Second of eight major signs that John writes about. John writes about eight major miracles. This is the second one. Yet, if you go back to John 2.23 you see a discrepancy. Look with me on the screen. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. Hmm. Chronologically, chapter 2 takes place before chapter 4. It says that Jesus was doing signs, yet John said two signs. And critics of the Bible use passages like this all the time to say, you cannot trust that thing. It's so full of discrepancies. It's constantly contradicting itself. What do you do with a passage like that? Where John says there were signs in Jerusalem. And we know that the people that were in Galilee were observing them because it says that in the beginning. Yet John says this is the second sign. If you look closely, it does not say that this is the second miracle Jesus performed. It says it's the second miracle in Cana of Galilee while he's in Galilee. So you can rectify those positions by understanding that John's just explaining for us what's going on here in Galilee at this moment in time. He's not saying it's the second miracle. So you have to look really closely sometimes at these verses to understand that. There are many signs that Jesus did, two of which we see here. His power over time, God made water into wine in this village called Cana, bypassed the fermentation process, instantly taking something that normally over the scope of nature takes months to happen, and he just shortened it and made water into wine. Now we see his power over space. Distance is no issue with God. He's not limited simply because he's in Cana and the boy's in Capernaum. Yet people came to it with this framework of thinking. So, as we work through this thing called the portrait, we've just seen a couple significant brushstrokes explaining God. Jesus has showed us that God is not limited by space. He's not limited by time. So if you have your notes this morning, there's four things that I'm leaving you with after you filled in the blanks. Some things for you to ponder. How are you doing these days in taking Jesus at His Word? When He says, this is the way it's going to be, Do you accept that? Next one. Do you set aside those teachings and commands which seem too radical and too disruptive to your own comfort zone? Third one. Is your view of God big enough? 
Can he truly do far more abundantly than anything you might ever think or imagine? The fourth one, this is the last one. Which of your paradigms, this applies to me as well, which of our paradigms do you think God's Spirit still needs to remake? As we all approach God through a certain lens of thinking, and He always is about something else. <laughs> That's your perspective. You don't understand. I've got a much bigger story going on over here. Yes, your son is dead and dying on this bed, but I'm about to save your entire household. I believe, personally, just by looking at this, I can't back it up, that these people probably became great witnesses for Jesus in Capernaum. Because when Jesus ended up living in Capernaum, there were many people who followed them. And I've got to believe this guy's household was right there at the front of the line. And let me tell you about Jesus. He, he healed my son. There's a much bigger story going on than just this man's son who was dying in bed. So, I want you to leave today with this memory. God is intentional in His thinking about you. His plans, His purposes are intentional. And He's thinking about you way more than what you know. Let's pray and ask God to seal this truth in our heart. Father, I thank You for causing John to write this down so that we would have this story to look back on and see just a glimpse into Jesus' interaction with mankind so that we would better understand Your nature and Your character. And Jesus truly explained You in this setting. And Father, we thank You for that. I ask that You would seal these truths in our heart. Cause us this week as we move ahead, as we take on situations that we totally have no idea what's coming this week but to believe that you have an intentional purpose behind them and to trust you in the midst of it. God will give you the glory. Help us to remember these things. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.